Hello, and welcome to Cheer Up, Buddy, the Sad Man Movie Podcast. I'm Tom. And I'm Rickshaw Boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> this week, Rickshaw Boy and I are watching The Apartment, the 1960 Billy Wilder film starring Jack Lemmon, Shirley MacLaine, and Fred McMurray. Ready? How you doing? I'm doing okay. Tom, how are you? Oh, I'm doing all right. We're what? Uh, I'm nine and a half hours away from the New Year's, and you're ten and a half hours away, so... <laughs> How are you spending those hours until we cross over into 2024? I'm relishing the last moments of 2023. A great year by all accounts for everyone. I'm taking no <laughs> questions. Um, no, and it's interesting that we do have a uh, a New Year's movie. We're recording, you know, as you said, shortly before 2024 starts. And hopefully this movie will put us on the right track for 2024. Although, given all the things that I know are supposed to happen in 2024, um, it seems unlikely. You know, I try to keep the perspective that things can't keep getting worse, but I just feel like an idiot for having that perspective. But at the same time, I do uh, believe in the Albert Camus view of absurdism that life is meaningless and you just have to apply your own meaning to everything. Otherwise, why don't you just commit suicide? So we're starting, which actually, I guess, does tie into this week's episode. Uh, yeah. Do you want to give a short, short description of the plot for The Apartment? Sure. In 1960s, The Apartment, C.C. Baxter is a corporate employee who loans out his apartment to his bosses so they can meet their mistresses. Baxter puts up with their impositions until he's promoted. However, his new boss, Sheldrake, Fred McMurray, uses it for liaisons with Baxter's office crush, the elevator girl, Fran Kublik, uh, Shirley MacLaine. One night, Fran grows angry about Sheldrake's other dalliances and his refusal to break up with his wife, uh, and she takes sleeping pills. Baxter finds her in his apartment and calls his neighbor, Dr. Dreyfus, Jack Crushton, to help save her. Um, so my first question, Tom, how do you feel about Castro? <laughs> I thought about writing that in my notes, too. Uh, <laughs> I don't like the man. I, I think he's a bad guy. But at the same time, you know, I'm not even going to go say what I was about to say. Uh, Castro was a bad man. Leave it at that. Sure. So my summary for the movie was, in America, first you get the bosses, then you get the sleeping pills, then you get the women. <laughs> Have you seen this before? Mm -mm. This is the first time I've seen this. And it was really interesting because it did seem like a lot of older movies. Like you could, you know, it, it seemed like in that tradition of like, like 50s movies, but then the subject matter was a little risque as well. And so it seemed like a combination of like more contemporary movies and, and sort of older movies, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, one of the first thing I've seen this a handful of times. One of the things I mentioned to my significant other while we watched mm -hmm. it was I'm really amazed that this was made in the time. And I listened to the commentary the next day after watching it. And apparently uh, Billy Wilder didn't think this would be made in the studio mm -hmm. system. So he thought he was, he was going to have to turn it into a stage play for Broadway or somewhere in New York because he didn't think any movie studio would make a movie about a guy's bosses using his apartment as a fuck pad. But you know, it happened and it was great. And it's it's one of those movies that makes me feel like MAGA people who want to go back to the 1950s don't have an idea of what it actually was like. Because this is just as, you know, this is arguably more depraved than modern day behavior. Yeah, but there were no 
uh, racial minorities until two thirds into the movie. So that I think that's what yes, they were. One scene. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Two the, the 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 I I only remember the uh, the shoe shine boy. Yeah. There's a shoe shine boy at the very end who's uh, black, and then there's a chi the oh, sketchy the looking Chinese restaurant with uh, rickshaw boy on the piano. Oh, sketchy looking. I thought that Tiki Bar looked amazing. That's like one of those places from a movie I wish I could go to in real life. I think it looks amazing to us, but I think for them it was supposed to look a little bit sketchy. But um, I do not like we're jumping all over the place, but well, I'll save it because I, I think the composition in those that Chinese restaurant, those scenes were like very good. But we can talk about that later. Sure. Yeah, I guess. We should start off with identifying the sad man. I mean, I, I think it's for anyone who hasn't seen it. The sad man in this movie is C.C. Baxter, played by Jack Lemmon, who, as Riddy mentioned, he's a middling insurance accountant. Is that what it was? Actually, I think it, yeah, that's what it was. Something like that. And he, he so he keeps getting kicked out of his apartment by his bosses so they could use it as a fuck pad to have affairs. And then to make, the, like you said, to make things worse, one of his bosses ends up bringing cc baxter's crush to the place and they don't they don't fuck it out but she ends up trying to commit suicide so it was a it was a dark it's it's funny because this movie is considered a comedy it's labeled that but jack romantic, romantic comedy, comedy quote yeah. unquote. but jack lemon nor uh, billy wilder considered it a comedy so they they were always confused as to why the studio labeled it that and as I mentioned in the commentary, the I forgot who the the commentator was, but he kept emphasizing that this movie really took a lot from noir films and the way it was filmed. Oh, there's a helicopter flying. Oh, it's a military one. It's a fat boy. Castro is coming for you after what you just said. I guess. <laughs> you should have <laughs> held my tongue. But no, it, it, it had a lot of noir elements. It's kind of like a lot of chiaroscuro and kind of. Well, I was always very entertained by the scenes where Jack Lemmon is lurking in the shadows outside his apartment so his bosses don't see him. <laughs> what a perv. I, I also had two questions. One is, how can you call this a romantic comedy without uh, Matthew McConaughey being anywhere in it? If, the, if this were a McConaughey movie, I feel like every scenario would turn into a menage a trois we'd be like hey all right you bringing it bringing your girl over all right i'm not leaving i'm joining <laughs> like i feel like that'd be a an interesting perspective i did have a uh speaking of perspective and, and matthew mcconaughey uh what the 2023 version of this would be like and i had a note that baxter rushed from home so he can't really leave when his bosses bring their mistresses in and then his cold is like bring his cold is actually covid and so he's spreading COVID when he comes back to the office with a cold. So had a lot of thoughts about uh, how you'd make this in 2023. I did. It did seem like risque subject matter to me. And the first thing I thought of was, if you remember, um, you know, uh, Brooklyn Nine-Nine and, and Captain Holt, Andrew Brower, who sadly passed away. Yeah. One of the characters says he and his character's husband should, quote unquote, bone. And then there's like a, a you know, bone? 40 minutes later, bone. Yeah. And so that's what I, that was my feeling with this movie is like, bone, how dare you? Well, going off, I, I had two thoughts from that. First off, there were two alternate titles that were flo uh, floated around before they decided on the apartment. Please tell me one was bone. One was who's been sleeping in my bed. 
And the other one was someone's been sleeping in my bed, which I think both of those are terrible. I think who's sleeping in my bed sounds sort of like a mystery thriller. Mm-hmm. And someone's been sleeping in my bed. I don't know. That, I could see that being like some sort of like childhood horror movie, but hey, either way. Ugh. But uh, yeah, my my take on this, if this was modern day, it would be like an hour by hour Airbnb and he would be rich. <laughs> yeah, I he wouldn't have to work for these people. Well, I these people are over him. Um, you know, he gets promoted, I think, to their level or above them, like later in the movie. Why don't they all just ship in and rent an apartment? I mean, I guess like New New York real estate is what New York real estate, if it's the '60s or the 2020s. But uh, you know, I'm just like, you guys are like corporate middle management. Just rent your own damn apartment. Yeah, that would have made a lot more sense. I. It's funny you mentioned the the real estate market. I looked up the address of where this house would have been. Wow. And everything it, it was 51 west 67th street and so i looked that up on zillow that exact address doesn't exist but that street does and everything is like multi-million dollar townhomes sure so i modern day they would explain why they couldn't afford it back then yeah you think they could figure out i'm sure it was like still a, expensive then but like a shared bachelor pad it also reminded me um i'm sorry I, I i hate referencing the memes on blue sky there was this thing going on around with a picture of an owl looking into a window saying that you know that owl that escaped from the zoo and it's living in like central park the caption says experts say this escaped zoo owl may be looking into nyc apartment windows because he views humans as mates and then uh, someone had added the text dating a New York man. Um, so that's also what this movie reminded me of uh, is this wayward owl trying to find human love. Oh, who isn't though? I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> it is, it is such a weird movie. It's, it's an excellent movie, but it is so weird. weird. I mean, movie. just the inherent plot and then the structure of it. That's what I was going to say. It almost felt like the climax happens halfway through where Shirley MacLaine attempts suicide. Yeah. Where it almost, you know, most most modern films have a three-act structure. This one, it felt like it kind of was two, where it was everything leading up to the suicide and then everything after the suicide, mm-hmm. which I found kind of interesting. I'm sure it could be broken down into more aspects, but it definitely doesn't, it doesn't feel like a modern movie or any really other movie in several ways. So it's one of those things where once it was done, I walked, watched several YouTube videos about the screenplay Mm -hmm. and everyone was just gushing over about how great it was. And it's how it's almost a flawless story because it, it really does set up everything that comes later where they set up the existence of sleeping pills, like very early on where once a, Axer gets a, actually gets into his apartment. He takes a sleeping pill to go to sleep. And then one of his bosses is like, I got a Marilyn Monroe lookalike. I got to come over for 45 minutes. And he's So he ends up sleeping on a bench outside. And then jumping to the end, he, he'd mentioned he com- tried to commit suicide in the past because he was in love with a friend's wife. Mm-hmm. And then right before the end, they you see the gun. And then you hear a big pop at the end. Which I will ask, did you did you ever think that he was killing himself there at the end? I mean, given just the time frame of the movie, it seemed like somewhat unlikely. But, uh, you know, they did introduce the... I thought the introduction of the gun was a little ham-fisted, whereas the introduction of the sleeping pills was a little... Was, like, I think a little bit better done in that it came, like, pretty early on in the movie. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but I, that was the other things I was going to mention is um, I'm really interested in like media when in a book or a movie, like that big sort of turning point event happens, like essentially halfway through in like the thought that goes into that structure. And so like, yeah, like, you know, Shirley MacLaine's character taking the sleeping pills happens like about an hour into this two hour movie kind of, I, I had forgotten about this. Like I had learned about it, like some other, like maybe in undergrad, but like in uh, East Asian literature, there's like a four line structure where there's an introduction, mm-hmm. there's development, there's a twist and then a conclusion. It kind of like followed that like four part structure as opposed to that kind of, you know, traditional three act structure that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's a complex movie, but simple. It's just, it, I really am trying to, there's so many things I want to talk about. I'm trying to not be scattershot with it. I'm trying to figure out where I should. Yeah, because there's just so much I love about this movie. All right, to refocus ourselves, just, well, actually, no, this is a very bad tangent. I shot, probably should ask this later, but it's mm-hmm. the first question I had. Seen as the star is Jack Lemon. If your last name had to be a fruit, what would it be? I mean, lemon is great because then you can talk about lemon parties like uh, 30 Rocks. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I mean, and I, I, there are fruits I like and fruits I don't like. So I think lemon is up there. Maybe orange. I don't know. I'd take grape at a, at a, um, if I was forced to. So how about you? I'm partial to lime. I think if it was a fruit, I, I already have my vegetable down. I, already, I I often refer to myself as potato because my last name vaguely translates to that in of Portuguese. Of the potato. So I already have the vegetable covered, but of the potato, which I was one of the first things I learned in college, thanks to a friend who had lived partially in Brazil in her high school years. So thanks for that, Luam. All right. Well, actually, this is, I think, the mm-hmm. biggest question for me with this movie does baxter constantly change the sheets or does he even change the sheets at all no he doesn't there's no way because you remember i remember early in the movie he goes to bed and he's reading something and he just tosses it like a magazine or a newspaper and he just tosses it over the side so this is not a guy who's like changing the sheets that's my firm belief yeah that that was kind of my take too the fact that they never showed him changing it out which is like oh he's just sleeping in his boss's crusty ass sex sheets which also is like does that apartment just constantly reek of sex like is because these are like gross old men and they're like smoking and drinking and presumably out of shape and like sweating like monsters while attempting intercourse so it's kind of like this place has got to be disgusting that one lady the the switchboard operator also is not maybe not in her prime in this movie as well. So I have a note that she looks kind of like a grandma. So I, I, I'm sure the the funk from his uh, apartment is not the best uh, the best smell going on. And I, I, I mean, look at the the Christmas tree he puts up. Like that is like a, it's even sadder than the one in like um, Peanuts. So it's- it's Charlie, Charlie Brown, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny you mentioned the ages. How old do you think the oh, Jack Lemmon the, character is? In, in my heart of hearts, I want to believe that all of them are 100 years old. And then, <laughs> you know, Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine are 100. And then everyone else is like going up from there. But uh, sadly, I think he's probably younger than us now. So that makes me feel very sad. Yeah, well, they never specify in the mm-hmm. film. But in real life, Jack Lemmon was 35 when Oof. he filmed this. And Shirley MacLaine, I think, was 24. 
425 but you're you're absolutely right everybody looks so old and we were talking about that while watching it and my partner was like well that's just because of all the smoking and boozing and i said that's got to be partially it but all these people also live through a world war i mean that's got to take a toll on how everybody collectively looks as a society i mean we haven't lived through a world war but we have lived through the quite a bit thanks boomers um so uh, we should also be looking this rough, but uh, I don't know. But, you know, I was going to say that Jack Lemon is an actual actor, too, because like outside of like 12 Angry Men, I think my impression of him is all those movies he did with Walter Matthau was like an older gentleman. Mm-hmm. Seeing him as like a younger guy here was like actually sort of a little bit weird, especially for the first like 25 to 30 minutes of this movie. Sure. Yeah, I got I guess just when we were coming of age and he was still around, he was always just that that old guy. Yeah, exactly. But I will say his younger career is pretty great between this and some like it hot. Him and Billy Wilder were just like a fantastic acting, directing duo. They just made like hit after hit. It was just really astounding once you kind of take a step back and watch those old ass films and then kind of see that it was the same people over and over. It's like, oh, man, these were powerhouse people. Well, speaking of of Billy Wilder and his collaborators, I think that that mention of uh, Marilyn Monroe was also... Uh, TV trip says it was might have been a little bit of a, a shot at at actual Marilyn Monroe because they worked together on the seven year itch and some like it hot and quote mm-hmm. uh, Wilder didn't think much of her professionalism. You're right. That did come up in the commentary. I forget what the line was, but he said something. He had a line. I was like, I like he did get frustrated by her, but he did have a line. It was like, I'd rather wait like two hours for Marilyn Monroe to show up than to be on time with other actors. So it's kind of like, it seemed like they had a weird relationship where like he did appreciate her performances. Cause she, I do think she was kind of like, I, from the few films I've seen her in, she was a very good performer. And I think that does get lost by the fact that she was such a huge sex icon, but she was talented, Mm -hmm. like even aside from her aesthetics. So, but I think it did, sound like it got to a point where it was maybe just too much of a hassle even though he did like her work yeah. that it's just like i need someone who actually will not make me sit around and lose my mind which you know i think we can all kind of relate to that sure i mean we've all had the coworker that does not help out um and i know i said this about eight and a half as well but like there's a lot of i mean given the time period they share eight and a half and then mad men is something made more contemporarily but set in this period I did have the quote, like, between this, Eight and a Half, and Mad Men, folks sure were getting their dicks wet in the 60s. <laughs> um, they really were. Yeah. A lot of I mean, philandering, a it... lot of, you know, good style. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but it, it, there's a lot of, like, Mad Men here. And you could, I could almost picture, especially when the bosses were talking to their mistresses, sort of like, um, you know, Roger Sterling talking to uh, What's-Her-Face. Or Joan, Joan. Joan Holloway. Yeah, yeah, Joan Holloway and, yeah. and Mad Men and, and things like that. And obviously that was taken in a slightly more serious sort of way. Or maybe not. I think, you know, the movie gets pretty serious as well, as we, as we said before. So uh, maybe this ties into the other thing I was thinking of, like throughout this movie and especially the first half, like my lawyer sense was tingling the entire time. Like this whole place and maybe the whole time period seems like a legal HR nightmare. And not only is it like the bosses going out with their secretaries and elevator girls and switchboard operators, but Baxter looks up Fran's like insurance file and like knows everything about her. And I'm like, that's terrible. That's like, uh, you know, again, you know, a lot of these uh, laws uh, 
protecting employee privacy probably were not, or I know for a fact were not in, in place at this time. But still, it, it just, it makes me feel very icky. Oh, it was very creepy, the fact that he knew where she was born, where she lived, her medical history. That's a creeper move. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like, well, people are doing that shit on social media now. It's just... It's almost like ingrained in in human culture. So it's like if I can be a creep to find out about the person I like, I'm going to be a creep, which is just a sad state of affairs. But going back to the HR aspect of it, yeah, I mean, really, in essence, Baxter keeps getting blackmailed to not blackmailed. I mean, I think let these guys use his apartment. It it's confused. You're, you're sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off, but yeah, it's it's blackmail is not the right term because he, it is, I guess a quid right. pro quo. Yeah. And I think like, but also, but there also is the, there also is the power imbalance in that they can fire him yeah. where he does, he does get something out of it. But at the same time, he's always kind of like, he can't say no for the, well, I mean, he could, yeah. But he fears the consequences if he were to say no. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's true. But I was sort of seeing it as not liking the character and that like with the character being not good or not completely good, kind of using it to get his, you know, kind of end of that quid pro quo. So, but yeah, you're right about the power imbalance. Like, I think this would be, you know, after like sexual harassment, like in Japanese, there's a lot of like terms about harassment and power harassment is one of them. Um, mm -hmm. And so... It did, I thought about that while watching the movie and there is like a sense of like both Baxter getting power harassed by the people above him and then Fran getting power harassed by both uh, Sheldrake and Baxter mm -hmm. um, kind of through the movie. Well, that this leads me to one of the questions I want to ask. Were you ever sexiled? Uh, I don't think so because I tried to get my own room as like sued as humanly possible. Oh yeah, I I never was just because most of my roommates and I were all just uh, helpless nerds. No, none of us were too. really getting any action in uh, in college, so it never really became an issue. So I don't think I ever was because even when I did share a place with people after college, we all had like our own bedroom, so no one ever got like kicked out if anyone was up to yeah. up there getting their freak on. But that was, that was another modern interpretation of this was like, I wonder if this could be like a take this plot and set it into a dorm, if that would work somehow. Van Wilder's The Apartment. <laughs> I just don't know what the exchange would be. Be like, why would they not sleep in their own bed? Like, it doesn't really yeah. work if you think about it. But it, that was a thought I had at one point. Uh, I did have a note saying no one told me Paul Giamatti was 90% of the roles in this film. And then I have a later note. <laughs> adding Mark Ruffalo. No one told me most of the uh, characters outside of Baxter and Joan were Paul Giamatti and or Mark Ruffalo. Um, so there's that. New York loves Italians. <laughs> and then I have notes saying the movie is black and white. Very white. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, it does. Th there are like minority people, as we mentioned, like Rickshaw, the Asian piano player, and then the two sort of like the waiter and the, uh, the coat check girl or whatever you want to call her, the hostess in that Chinese restaurant. <laughs> and then the black shoeshine boy um, at the end. But other than that, like this is a very white company. And I guess like, you know, I think again to like Mad Men where one of the practical jokes was they had like... They use the phrase Chinaman and had like an Asian family washing like laundry in one of the like they 
one of the junior executives' offices is like a practical joke. And they they use the phrase China Red. Um, yeah, that was, I don't know, it, it racial humor was very different in the 60s, it seems to me. Yeah, there was a weird line in this that I, I wrote down where one of the managers who uses the apartment as his uh, mistress lair in regards to the elevator girl, Shirley McLean, he says this to Jack Lemon. I'd like to take a slow elevator to China with her. Yeah, I have that written down as well. And I, I guess that's a sex euphemism, which I guess is like, oh, they're, they would just be in there for so long, they would inevitably have sex. Like, I, I was trying to make that work. And then I was trying to think of a modern equivalent where it's like, oh, I'd like to have a long layover in Atlanta with her, if you know what I mean. Like, I was trying to think of what <laughs> a modern equivalent would be. But even then, they're both stupid. Yeah, the, the, I have the phrase, casual sexual harassment, exclamation point, And then the slow elevator to China question mark, question mark, question mark, question mark. And I just want to, I want to think like, it rhymes with a vagina. Oh, I feel like that's, I don't know. I feel like I that's giving them too much credit. I don't know if that's true. Yeah. I, yeah, I think it is. Well, that, I guess this is another question I, I should just ask out of the, right out of the gate. Well, we're a half hour mm -hmm. in, so it's not too, but have you ever had a boss that you would let have sex in your bed? And I'm not saying like a boss you'd want to have sex with, but if a boss was yeah, like, hey, that's different. Rickshaw boy, I need to have sex with somebody right now. Can I borrow your bed? Have you ever had a boss that you would be okay allowing that? No, I don't. I've never had a boss where I've been like, that's fine. I've had one boss. Okay. One boss, I think I would, if she had asked, it'd be like, Tom, it's an emergency. She and I were close enough. I think I would at least considered it. I can't imagine a scenario where she would have needed that, but it's like, uh, you know, I took a road trip with this with this person and her three daughters one time. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time with her in court. Like, she helped me out a lot. It's like, if a, if a weird scenario arose where she's like, I need, my husband and I need to get it on right now, I'd be like, you know, Ara, you, you've been a pretty good boss to me. I would, I may would have considered it. Uh, there was no one I can think of that. And I think maybe... I don't know, you tell me if we have different philosophies, but I kind of thought about, especially the first half of the movie, as like a metaphor for the working man getting fucked by management as a allegory for capitalism. And I was like very like militantly like the management class is, is taking your apartment and fucking in your bed, Baxter. What are you going to do about it? I think that's a valid take because I wrote it. I had a note. Baxter hoard himself out to help others hoard themselves out. So I think that's a valid take on this, especially from a modern perspective. Fran's character in 1960 uh, isn't like, I mean, she mentions herself that she's like a, uh, a broken woman or whatever the phrase was. And I'm, I, the movie clearly, I think pretty clearly doesn't take that perspective on her. Um, but I'm surprised just as a movie of this period that it doesn't. But I think, and I, I bring all this up to say that like, Jack Lemon's character can't be like a broken man because um, that's not how men are looked at ever. And especially in this like time period, but he's giving up something that is, or he's like, you know, the flower of her like womanhood or virginity is like gone. Uh, but for Jack Lemon, he's giving up like his home, the place where he sleeps, like the place where his gun and sleeping pills are like, you know, he's kind of a slut too, <laughs> is what I'm trying to say, I guess. Oh, sure. I mean, it. I did love the running joke throughout the movie that all his neighbors think he's a gigolo and having sex with all these different women. I thought that was a funny running joke. 
but I, I will push yeah. back on that. I do think he is a bit of a broken man. Like we referenced it earlier, but when he does give that little talk to her when he's, so he has to spend 48 hours with her to make sure she doesn't kind of like succumb to the sleeping pills and doesn't try to commit suicide again. And he confides in her. He's like, oh, you know, you'll get over it because she commits suicide because she genuinely is in love with the guy she's having the affair with. And he keeps stringing her along saying he's going to leave his wife and what ultimately led her to commit suicide. The attempt to suicide was that a fellow employee was like, oh, you'll be me in five years because for, you know, I was in your situation five years ago. Then it was so and so. Then it was so and so. And now it's you. And so she realized that she was not special. He wasn't in love with her. It was just kind of like this weird, you know, sex thing that he was doing, just constantly having affairs on his wife. So that's what drove her to make. Oh, and also he took her to the apartment. It's Christmas Eve. He, <laughs> he throws a hundred does not have a, she, yeah, she has a gift for him and he's like, Oh, I got a present for your, for you. Here's a hundred dollar bill, which is like, <laughs> and so that's what kind of pushes her over the top where she's just like, I I'm done. I can't do this. And so, but talking about her no, but going back to Shirley MacLaine as a broken woman, one of my favorite things in the movie is the symbolic broken mirror that she has in her makeup compact that she carries with her, which we don't know it's hers at first. Baxter finds it hidden or it's fallen into the, the, the fallen into the crevices of his couch. He finds it brings it to work and tell like, Oh, Hey boss, uh, whoever you brought over last night, left this here. Thought you want to give it back to her. Didn't we know that? Cause we saw that Sheldrake and Shirley McLean's character got together at the Chinese restaurant. And then they talk about going to uh, the apartment. Baxter's apartment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. You're, I think there's some like dramatic irony. Oh, most definitely. We know what's going on, but that's how yeah, yeah. Baxter he finds out anything. that she's the girl, his boss is fucking, and I think that was just so eloquently conveyed. It was just such a simple, beautiful, and like a screenwriting, screenwriting perspective, but such a beautiful reveal because she opens up the mirror and he sees the cracked mirror and he, you just see his face sink in the reflection as <laughs> she's opening. It's just like, oh, this poor guy. And this is like, you know, granted, you kind of, I don't feel too bad for him because it's like, well, you're, you know, you're letting all these random ass people have sex in your apartment. You're facilitating the affairs. Like, not that I'm a, you know, some people have affairs. Who gives a shit? It's none of my business. But it's also like, you know, you're not innocent in this, buddy. Like, yeah, you're part of this whole situation. You're part of the process, Baxter. Trust the process. <laughs> I mean, we, uh, I don't know if you do this on purpose or not, but this is like the part of this movie takes place over Christmas, part of it uh, in New Year's. And there is a little bit of like New Year's, new life kind of thing happening here where, you know, kind of fast forwarding to the end a little bit, but Baxter realizes he's part of this process and decides that he's not going to be, he's not going to be a, a, an apartment slot anymore and throws his key at Sheldrake and it's the, you know, the executive key and he leaves. And when, uh, when, when Fran finds this out, she also is inspired to break out of the relationship with Sheldrake and you know, rush over to Baxter's apartment. Um, so there, I, I don't know if you like planned this, but it did, it did seem like a very sort of new year's sort of movie. Yeah. That's definitely why I chose it. This is the only movie I 
associate with New Year's, New Year's Eve. I, I think there's kind of a, a lack of movies. I think there is a rom-com, one of those kind of vignette movies that's New Year's Day, but I've never seen that. I don't, I, the fact I'm not even sure it exists just goes to show it has no real cultural mm -hmm. impact. But this is the movie I associate with New Year's, New Year's Eve because of that final sequence. Well, we kind of mentioned it earlier. That office party, that office party that they had, that looked better than any party I've ever attended in my life. <laughs> well, and again, I go back to Mad Men and there's that office party where like they accidentally cut off, is it Ken's foot? Um, or No, it's that British guy. The British guy loses his foot to a track to a, a lawnmower in the office at a party. Ken gets his eye shot out on a hunting trip, I believe. Oh, that's right. You're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah, they cut that guy's foot off. And I'm like, parties in the 60s were wild. <laughs> yeah. The note I have, it, yeah, I mean, it's going back to what I mentioned earlier, but the note I wrote was that greatest generation just didn't give a fuck after World War II. That's a note I made to myself. <laughs> yeah. You lost an eye, so what? I lost an eye to the Japanese at Iwo Jima. Exactly. They just, they are all hedonists. Maybe that's why MAGA wants to go back. I don't know. <laughs> this was the last movie to win, win Best Picture. This was nominated for 10 Academy Awards. I think it won five of them. But it was the last Best Picture in black and white until Schindler's List. It's, I think it's even a little bit anachronistic that it was in black. And that makes sense because, like, I know older movies that were in color. But this was in black and white. And then the last movie before that was uh, Marty, which was five years before that, which I found it all on TV tropes. But it's interesting that they did go with uh, black and white for this. And like I said, like there was a lot of good like black and white composition. And, and you know, um, when Fran uh, is sitting in front of the Goldfish Aquarium in the Chinese restaurant, I think like, well, both times they're in the Chinese restaurant, she and Sheldrake, the fish are like behind her. And it's like very like, it's a very nice composition of that frame. And then, you know, in the back and, you know, kind of bouquet effect out. And then the composition when Baxter and Fran are in the kitchen together. Um, mm -hmm. And he's joking about his spaghetti strainer tennis racket. Mm -hmm. And so like, it's really like wonderfully framed that I wonder, and maybe you having seen more Wilder films than me, um, is this like a thing that he does and especially sort of in black and white? Because I know Kurosawa was doing black and white for a long time um, after the introduction of color as well. So I can't speak to why he chose black and white. I was under the impression it was a budgetary reason. I may be wrong about that. But as far as his film technique, the commentary that I watched, Wilder's philosophy was if you are noticing the camera camera movement or you are more taken aback or more impressed by the quality of the shot than what mm -hmm. is happening in the story. That's he did not, he did not like anything that would break the reality or distract the audience. Like his big thing was he was very respectful of the, the audience's intelligence and he didn't want to like play games with the camera and, or that would potentially distract from the story or what was going on. But there was a lot of emphasis on lighting in his films to kind of direct attention to where he wanted the audience to look more so than with like zoom ins or particular camera shots. Well, I mean, now I feel bad. I'm sure he's turning over in his grave. But 
Um, I was also like specifically looking for that kind of thing. Whereas like, I'm surprised I didn't notice it. Like those were the two scenes that really kind of stuck, or three scenes, I guess, that stuck out to me. And normally like I'm really looking for those things in a movie. So I guess, mm -hmm. you know, to some extent, mission accomplished. I think he is more story driven than having an interest in the technical aspect of making a film. Yeah. But he also is, he's more sophisticated than it being a film theater production yeah. which a lot of you know but that's early early film i mean film had already been around several decades by this point but his his more emphasis was he didn't want to do anything that would risk distracting the audience from what was happening in the scene yeah and i mean that's a perfectly fine way to make a movie and I, it could be just like this is what happened and this is what i caught on camera and, and you know i'm just going to use it but i just i like those i like those shots um i think they were they were well put together Oh, I, something that I just, I remember when you're mentioning that he also was very known for only taking one or two takes of scenes because he didn't want to risk the studios re-editing in a way that he didn't want. Oh. So he would just do it once. If he liked it, be like, all right, that's good. That's what it's going to be. They can't play around and put in anything different. So he was very, you know, unlike say like Stanley Kubrick, who would do it hundreds of times and yeah. drive the actors crazy. Uh, Wilder apparently was like, that's good. That's what we're going to go with. And because if he got it the way that he wanted it, he wasn't going to risk someone else having the ability to change it out for something else. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I, I read that uh, Neil Simon later made a play based on the movie, but it, it puts an interesting spin. And I didn't know this, that he originally wrote it as a, or was thinking that it might be a play. And so it is something that I'd like to go back and like watch it with that in mind. I think there's a fairly limited number of like, sets and that like totally makes sense yeah given that like sort of information so um coincidentally it was based on based on a play that he saw in europe before he immigrated to the u.s where the play that inspired this it was a play about a couple who were both having an affair with one another and they would hang out in the guy's friend's apartment and that's where they would have their their rendezvous and when Wilder saw that play, he thought, what person would let people fuck in their apartment like this? Yeah. So that's oh, I think I saw that on the TV the... trips too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I kind of agree. Just, yeah, I mean, I think it's a fascinating question where early on, you don't really know how this scenario even started. And then, thank God, he finally explains it. I think it must have been the Shirley MacLaine, but he said, you know, uh, I was taking night classes to advance my career. I think it's the Sheldrake. One of my coworkers, was it, was it the Sheldrake? I can't remember who he explained it to. I think it's like when he's, how... yeah, when he's in trouble, when he feels like he's in trouble with Sheldrake, he's like, Sheldrake asks him how it even started, I think. I could be wrong, but. I can't remember. Anyway, whatever. You, you're probably right. <laughs> but the, the genesis of the scenario is that he, Baxter was taking night classes to help advance his career. A coworker said he needed a place to change into a tuxedo to mm. go to a gala or a ball or something. And then before he knew it, every week somebody had a ball that they were going to and needed to change into. And then Ben, did they know, have a ball? Eventually, oh boy, two of them usually. <laughs> and then the two things that really bothered me, like it's gross that his bosses are like having sex in his crusty sex sheets. But the grossest thing was uh, watching Jack Lemon wipe his nose and like use that uh aerosol spray in his nose that was pretty pretty gross and then finally when 
Fran is talking to Baxter and telling him about her like romantic past, she says three men and she's holding up four fingers. And it really was like, why? <laughs> Someone tell her she's holding up four fingers. Maybe it was two at once, so it only counted as three. Or maybe it's Sheldrake. I don't think Sheldrake was part of it, but like she's holding up four fingers and she says three. And I'm like, what is this? Why? Well, maybe that's why she flunked her secretarial <laughs> exam. She said spelling, but maybe numbers aren't too good for her either. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, as long as she got the right number for the elevator buttons, I guess that's all she had to worry about. <laughs> now, it's, you know, try going back to the office setting. Yeah. An interesting little tidbit I found out is that the... So when you look at it, the opening opening sequence when they introduce the, this office, it's just row upon row of people, White and people. it just looks vast, and, vast and unending, and pale and full of boring food. It just looks like a like a a office hellscape mm -hmm. that just never ends. I found out that they use forced perspective for that shot, so like it was all practical, but in the background. They used children in suits and marionettes to make it look like there was people working in the background. Oh, interesting. <laughs> so I thought that was that's such a weird little detail that I didn't need to know. I didn't notice while watching, but now that I know it, I was like, that's I love it. It's it's wild that it was cheaper or more effective to do that than it was to like just hire a bunch of extras. That's amazing. I didn't know that, but that's 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 it's crazy. Yeah, I. It is such an interesting film that even though it was so steeped in fifties, early sixties setting, yeah, it does have a timeless aspect to it. And I think a lot of that is so because of the, like using practical effects like that. Nothing really looks janky or outdated, but also the quality of the writing is so good. Like none of the dialogue feels out of place. I feel like you could take that almost verbatim set it in a modern setting and he wouldn't necessarily have to change any of the dialogue and i think that's just such an impressive feat for this movie where it just doesn't get there's nothing that kind of ties it down to its error and it has this kind of like timeless quality to it. and you kind of mentioned it earlier where it's just like yeah a guy's getting screwed over by his bosses and he doesn't get the girl he he wants and there are kind of like a lot of timeless yeah themes to it and elements that kind of make because i've seen this a handful of times i've seen it in theaters once or twice like i i've seen this a bunch and i i enjoy it every single time it's just such a strong film well and and tv tropes mentions that there's a verbal tick where a lot of characters uh, especially the office workers say wise like otherwise wise um or cookie wise is the one that i picked up on a couple of times mm -hmm. um and so the tagline for the movie was movie wise, there's never been anything like the apartment love wise, laugh wise or otherwise wise. And the actual script for the movie, you know, the last line is, you know, the Shirley MacLaine character saying shut up and deal. And then the uh, directions are Bud begins to deal, never taking his eyes off her. Fran removes her coat, starts picking up her cards and arranging them. Bud, a look of pure joy on his face, deals and deals and keeps dealing. And that's about it story wise. Yeah, it's it just has these little nuances and eccentricities. It sounds very like it, modern. It, to me. it like, does. It, it sounds like yeah, as you said, like you could mm -hmm. kind of transplant that into uh, twenty twenty three and not really lose anything or or have to translate it. I guess they wouldn't be dealing cards though. They would be 
sharing apps. Sharing memes. Yeah, they'd be like, check out this meme. Shut up and send me a meme. <laughs> and then they smile at each other while they're sending sharing memes with one another, just sharing TikTok videos. I um I accidentally I don't I don't go on Twitter slash X much anymore, but I saw Criminal Simpsons had a best like show me your favorite Simpsons reaction images. And so I downloaded everything I could from that thread and then just started spamming my brother with like random Simpsons <laughs> images. So um, I I understand. I understand uh, quote unquote lovemaking in 2023. Mm, yeah, maybe I should maybe I should try and spice up my own bedroom by sharing <laughs> memes with her. May that help things out. I did want to call attention to my favorite line in the movie. He's 5'2", 99 pounds, like a little chihuahua. And I was going to say, that's me. I'm 5'2", I'm 99 pounds, like a little <laughs> chihuahua. That lady, she deserved a uh, Supporting Actress Award. It's funny you mentioned the supporting cast. The doctor, I think, won an Oscar for this movie. Oh, did he? Which I was a little surprised by because he's not in it a ton. No. <laughs> he did uh, slap Shirley MacLaine around quite a bit. Well, here's another little interesting tidbit that I learned from the commentary. Okay. The studio wanted the doctor to be played by Groucho Marx. Okay. That would have been such a stupid decision because that would have broken any semblance of drama in those scenes. Yeah, you talk about not taking the the viewer out of the scene. Like that would have like that would have been really uh really difficult to to look past. Well, yeah, I think Wilder told him to fuck off because that yeah. was a terrible idea. So luckily that prevailed because that would have been so weird because you know he's just this nice jewish doctor and he's coming over and like saving this life's woman and if it was groucho marx to just be like oh is he going to be twirling his mustache and cigar and be like hey that's this this bird took too many sleeping pills she's boring me she's so sleepy i don't i can't talk about groucho marx puffing on his cigar i uh demand that if you edit this you don't edit it out but you said this life's woman um as opposed to this woman's life which uh, I think is great. Oh, whatever. I told you before we recorded, my my brain has been not functioning at full capacity recently. I love it. Uh, maybe you could shed some more light on this, but speaking of casting, I think, you know, I had a real distaste for the character of Baxter. And I think they explicitly said this, like maybe on TV tropes, but the way that they tried to like balance that out is to cast uh, Jack Lemmon as Baxter. And it's hard to like hate Jack Lemmon. Um, and I do think he brings mm -hmm. this like sort of energy to the role that, that makes him a little more likable than you would normally think, given like he's uh, pimping out his apartment for his bosses to have uh, their affairs in. Same thing with Sheldrake and Fred McMurray. Like it's really creepy because uh, from what I understand, he played a lot of those like father figure type roles. And you see him doing that, you know, on Christmas with his kids in this movie. Uh, but it makes it feel even worse because like he's like, it'd be like, I don't know who my in our modern day parlance, like who is like the Bill Murray? Well, Tom Hanks. Tom, Tom Hanks, Hanks I think. Yeah, Bill Murray has played this role in yeah. sort of like Broken Flowers and stuff. But um, yeah, like Tom Hanks, like being like a or like Denzel Washington in uh, in 
training day. Like it's that kind of like he's he's so great and he's playing this like awful character and it makes it feel even worse. I'm glad you brought up Fred McMurray because I knew him from a bunch of different Disney movies growing up. Like I think he was in the Shaggy DA. You knew him from law school, like that was what you were gonna say. Well, I did watch the Shaggy DA to help me pass my criminal law exam, so that that does factor in. But <laughs> the movie where the local DA turns into a dog, uh, that was a that was a movie I watched a lot as a kid. Classic. But I growing up, I did know. Fred McMurray as just like this goofy, lovable, kind of comedic dad type character in these movies. Then you see this and he's just a giant piece of shit. Yeah. And then he's also in Double Indemnity where he is an insurance salesman plotting a guy's murder so he and his wife can run away together and steal the life insurance money. So, I mean, he definitely has a dark side to him, which he does pull off pretty well. And I... I don't know off the top of my head whether those roles came first, then the Disney stuff, or vice versa. But I mean, he was he was a surprisingly versatile actor. He did a lot of different stuff, and he's been in a lot of... I mean, this and Double Indemnity in and of themselves, like, those are going to be two movies people are, will probably watch until people stop watching movies, which will probably be in a couple years. Can't watch movies if there's no electricity. Can't, you know... <sighs> 2024 people we got a lot to look forward to it's going to be a good year <laughs> yeah it's true tom did you have any other thoughts about this film uh we should probably talk about his junior executive bowler hat <laughs> i do have it's what they call the junior executive model written down so this will go back to what you were just saying about baxter being sort of an unlikable character and them finding ways to make the audience not hate him mm -hmm. so originally in the script early on in that opening scene where he you know not an opening scene but that early scene where he gets in bed takes a sleeping pill and you mentioned he looked through a magazine and tossed it away originally in the script it was supposed to be him looking at a playboy mm -hmm. and they scrapped that because will wilder was like okay we can't have this guy letting people use his apartment as a fuck pad and then also being kind of a perv potentially objectifying women by looking at a playboy magazine that's just too much like we need to have him at least be potentially redeemable mm -hmm. and so they cut the playboy part but you also mentioned it earlier like he is kind of a piece of shit too because once he gets he gets two promotions over the course of the movie which is really astounding because it's like over the course of three weeks yeah he get really climbs the ladder but with each promotion he keeps well i guess with the first promotion he definitely tries to le leverage that new power for lack of a better term to mm -hmm. try and get shirley mcclain to go out with him again and we should say she's all he's already asked her out to a play because in exchange for getting the apartment fred mcmurray gave him two tickets to see music man yeah and she agrees to go but instead of meeting up with him she's in the apartment with fred mcmurray getting her fuck on presumably so, oh most definitely you don't get a 25 year old <laughs> shirley mclean at your employee's apartment and you don't you don't steal the deal, baby. Gross. You gotta go all the way. Coerce her with lies and her career. You, you know, you gotta, you gotta use sexual coercion in that situation, my guy. <laughs> Gross. Yeah, no, I and I think I, I'm sure there's a lot of ways they sort of 
tone down his character to make him less unlikable or more likable, I guess, is the better way to put it. Well, I mean, they make him a super dork. Like, the hat that yeah. he buys looks so stupid. He, it's a dorky hat. He looks yes. like such an idiot. And I was just like, I, I, I it was a... <laughs> what a tool. I cringe. I was like, ugh, this hat. It was like the modern equivalent of wearing a fedora, fedora like, milady type scenario where it's just like, oh, God, this is <laughs> just... He's painful. an incel. He's a he's a proto incel. You know, arguably he is, but I do say a good thing about this is that there is a redemptive arc for him because after the the suicide attempt, he does stop. He you know, one of his bosses shows up and is like, "Oh, I reserved it for four o'clock," and he's like, "Get the hell out of here!" Which finally is like, "Oh, thank yeah. God, you finally did it." But the boss is only cool with it because he sees that it's the elevator girl. It's like, "Oh, you're you're one of us now, buddy boy." And so it's like, yeah, you know, but then he does eventually quit rather than kind of keep playing the game. It took him long enough, but maybe he did eventually get there. And especially like when he has that meeting with uh, Shirley McLean's character after she leaves his apartment and she's talking about going back with Sheldrake and he's talking about he got the uh, promotion he wanted. And so for me it was hard to tell to some degree like how much of that he believed and didn't like clearly he didn't believe all of it but he there was like an element of of you know sort of how much is he buying into his own hype i guess yeah but i think that is one of the master strokes of this movie it makes it a very complicated situation for him where he can't say no because of potentially losing his job but he also can't say no because he is advancing his career at the same time. So it's like, it's not that he's just getting kicked out of his apartment all the time. He's also getting something from it. Yeah. And it's kind of like, well, it, it's not a clear cut scenario. So it's like, you know, it's, it's, you'd like to think everyone would be like, oh, I, I would do the right thing. I would, I would not allow these shenanigans to go on. But how often is like someone, in such a shitty career where there's really no advancement, like would you take the opportunity and, and suck shit for a couple of years in order to kind of get to a position where you wouldn't have to suck shit anymore. But he just was, he was always going to be having to suck somebody's shit because of the, the guy in charge getting in on mm -hmm. it. And it is one interesting to wonder whether he would have given a shit if it was a woman he wasn't in love with who he had found there, like, would that have been enough for him to be like, this is too much. I'm not going to do this anymore. Yeah. Or was it, it the seems fact unlikely, that he but... was the woman? Yeah. yeah. So it's, so it's a, I don't know. It's a simple movie, but there is a lot of complications to it too. So it's, uh, I don't know. I, I just really enjoy this movie. It's just, there's just so much going on. It's intricate, but it's simple and nuanced at the same time. Like, I don't know. I just, I, I, don't know if I watch this every year, but I watch it most years, I guess. Mm -hmm. Especially given the premise of the movie, I was surprised by the complexity and the nuance, both in terms of like when the movie was was made and put out and sort of like, it does seem like it's going to be a little bit of like a romantic comedy, you know, kind of fluffy and not very, not very nuanced. And it turns out to be like a lot more, you know, complex than, than you might first think. Mm -hmm. Well, we mentioned how he traded his place for tickets to the music man yeah are there any theatrical performance tickets you trade your place for i mean sadly it's over but spider-man turn on the dark and now that it's ended in in you know fiasco i wish i had seen it <laughs> so 
I guess I would trade for that show. I'm, I'm not a big like live theater slash musical theater person, though. No, I I actually that was going to be my answer, too. Is <laughs> I, I, That's why we're doing this podcast together. It's very frustrating because I probably received the most praise. As far as all my writing goes, I probably re- received the most praise for my playwriting tom mentioned to me before the podcast started that he was going to do a lot of cooking today before new year's and i was gonna i forgot to say it but i was gonna say are you gonna make lasagna and did jesus take a crap in it actually yes i am making (laughs) lasagna but that goes back to old family traditions where i guess it's an old irish and or scottish tradition where you eat leafy greens on uh, new year's eve and new year's day it's supposed to kind of bring financial prosperity into the coming year so growing up my family used to eat cabbage like we just like rip a piece of cabbage off a cabbage head and eat that and it was kind of gross (laughs) it was like well this is just you know it's just stupid tradition as i've gotten older and become more talented in the kitchen what i do now is i will make i will prepare fried cabbage which is super simple you just put a bunch of butter and brown sugar and some seasoning and cabbage in a pan and you just let the, the cabbage wilt and it turns into this like really tasty side and then i also try and do something with spinach as like an actual main so usually i in recent years i usually make spanakopita but we couldn't find phyllo dough this year there seems to be a run on phyllo dough in the denver area for some reason so we <laughs> pivoted to making a spinach lasagna and so that's what i need to get going on so i can eat at a reasonable hour today uh yes the, the, so the lasagna does continue on it's uh yeah it's just a it's a sad tragedy that i kind of hate the theater and <laughs> but i get the most praise for my theatrical writing which is why i started writing you're like george lucas i wish but no <laughs> i mean did you know that i was invited to read at the Denver Center for Performing Arts a couple years ago. I did not, but did you? Yeah, yeah. I um, I took a writing class at a local. There's a local nonprofit that's all like writing workshops and stuff like that. I took one because it'd been a couple years. I was trying to get you know trying to get back into a groove. And the woman who taught the class was a local playwright, and she was great. Like I I really liked her. We had a good rapport, good relationship, and she really enjoyed my writing. And so every year i don't know if it's still going on but for several years there was a like a playwright festival that would happen at the denver center for performing arts and i guess someone asked this this instructor if she knew any people and she recommended me so i was among four or five people that year that was it was like we were listed as like the top five upcoming Denver playwrights, I think was, it was some something like that. And so we each got to read a short piece and I wrote a, uh, it was either flat. I don't think flash fiction is the right term. Maybe it is, but it's a, I wrote like a five minute play mm-hmm. and to date myself, it was, it was called David Bowie space car. It was really briefly, it was around the time when Tesla shot a car into space playing david bowie music i'm sure david bowie would have loved it oh indubitably he would have been like this is what i want i love that i want elon musk to remember me oh man this is how i want to be remembered so i wrote a play about 
a couple that was about to have a baby and they were debating what to name the child. I didn't assign genders, but one partner wanted the non baby rearing partner wanted to name the child David Bowie space car because they thought the world was such a terrible place and the absurdity of shooting a car into the into the outer space with David Bowie music was so stupid that it made them smile and they wanted to name their baby something that would make the rest of the world smile and then the other partner and they go on this huge monologue about how they want their child to be unique and special and bring good into the world and the other partner ultimately is like no that's a terrible idea we're not naming our child baby uh, David Bowie space car and then I think the final line of the play is like, well, how about Beyonce booty? And I think that was the end of the play. Brought the house down. It, a couple of people actually came up to me afterwards and were like, that was really good. So, I mean, they didn't have to go out of their way to say that. So no, I took that. It didn't totally crash and burn. I like it. I like the concept. My, I was going to say that my philosophy about theater is basically when Homer and Bart see the Planet of the Apes uh, musical and they're like parts like this play has everything and so yeah like basically show me spider-man or show me planet of the apes the musical that's all i want to see oh i would definitely let somebody fuck in my bed if i if that <laughs> meant that i could see an actual real life production of uh, stop the planet of the apes i want off <laughs> i hate every ape i see from chimpanzee to chimpanzee uh, I'm sure oh. Jack Lemon is smiling in his grave. I hope so. But no, I, <laughs> I mean, I really, I don't, not that I was ever really much of a theater goer to begin with, but that's also part of the problem. I feel like the theater is just so inaccessible to so many people. Like, unless it's a really kind of small hole in the wall type production, it's always really pricey. Yeah. So it's always like kind of wealthier old white people. And then it's usually like retreading of Shakespeare or some historically context, contextual play. And it's just like racism's bad. It's like, yeah, we know, but like, it's not, you're not saying it in, in a way that's making me think about it any differently. I remember that's the last play I saw. Mm -hmm. And that was probably five six years ago at this point and that was because i got free tickets from that aforementioned writing class a, a wealthy white woman in the class is like i have two tickets to this play tonight does anyone want to go and i think i was Condition. i may have been unemployed you have to let me fucking your bed yeah <laughs> and so i went and so you know my partner and i went and we're just like this is not good like, it wasn't bad. I mean, it was staged well. The production was fine. But, like, this story is not interesting. It's not compelling. And I, you know, and maybe it's a reflection on the local theater scene. I thought that I thought the performances were a little hammy, but I'm not an actor. Maybe they were spot on. I don't know. But it was just kind of this, like, it was just everything that I had a problem with as far as theater was embodied in that evening. And it was just like, why would I spend money to do this? Yeah, and maybe, like, one, I, I'm willing to, like, act and stuff. Like, I'll do acting. Like, that's a different sort of experience for me. But, like, going to see a play, and maybe I will implicate both of us as being, like, very tacky, classless. But, like, I'm going to play, like, 
50 bucks for uh, me and another person to see a, a play, I could just buy a video game. Like, that would bring me a far more pleasure than, like, going to see a play, honestly, or, like, you know, subscribe to Fubo and watch the Detroit Pistons break their 28-game losing streak <laughs> or whatever. Like, you know, there's so much... I could be more entertained by spending that money in, in so many other ways. Yeah, and it's just... You know, and it goes back to where the money's coming from. And so it's kind of like a catch 22. They don't, a lot of theaters on the whole aren't making plays that would appeal to 40 year old male nerds like us, but they're also not making them because we don't pay to see it. So it's like, but we don't pay to see it because we don't want to see like August and Osage County, you know, it's like, or whatever, like, you know, if it was a bunch of, Sam Shepard one acts, I'd go see mm -hmm. that. Or if it was like Bertolt Brecht or any like more absurd stuff, weird stuff, like early 20th century stuff, I would mm -hmm. be all about that. Because uh, I remember one, I, this was such a weird thing that happened in undergrad. Like I went with a friend who she was a theater kid, but like on campus, they did a bunch of uh, Samuel Beckett short plays like mm -hmm. you just it was like a walking tour through the campus and it was just like these really short performances by samuel beckett and i thought that was so much fun but stuff like that doesn't really exist and it's frustrating because like the stuff that is it doesn't really exist as a medium anymore to begin with because it's been pushed out by movies and tv but then the ones that still remain are just not anything I would have any interest in. And I feel like I, you and I kind of can be presumptuous enough to speak for our generation. Like a lot of these plays are not speaking to us. It's like, I don't need to go see some theater production that's on par with green book that make me think, Oh, this racist met one black person that they like now racism solved. Like this, it's just not, it's all just kind of like, panaceas. I want to argue with you that we are the voice of our generation. Uh, you know, there's a beginning of a Roots album that's like, uh, people don't get our shit. And then there's an arguing voice saying, no, it's that you guys don't play what people want to hear. And yeah. I, I feel like that was, yeah, like most theater. I don't need to see the fucking lottery again for the hundredth time. Like, put something else on for God's sake. Yeah, there's just so much out there. And just to keep recycling the same stories over and over. And I'm not even saying that like, people should stop performing Shakespeare. I think that's maybe like the one exception. Like, yeah, Shakespeare should be on constant rotation because he had so many different plays and they are timeless and you can have different perspectives too. We have such a bedrock of Shakespeare that it doesn't hurt you to like tweak it or change it or to like make your throne of blood or Shakespeare adjacent sort of a play. And, and so like put on Shakespeare, put on tweaks to Shakespeare do that and then put some other stuff on uh why isn't like monty python a genre of uh play and i don't mean like directly there's spam a lot i guess but like directly putting on like monty python works but like why isn't there as you said this absurdist tradition in uh, you know kind of live theater that isn't you know improv really i'm just bitter and jaded that no one has paid us money to do theater productions of our horror podcast from last year because i did write that thinking like, oh, these could be turned into short films or these could be turned into a stage play. <laughs> like, I, We got to do it ourselves. I just want someone to let me do my stuff. 
I'm not, I don't have enough money yet to be an eccentric millionaire that can produce this bullshit. So someone give me the money to do it. Billy Wilder, you've, you've made some money. You've won some Academy Awards. Come on, help us out here. Let's dig him up. From beyond the grave. Yeah, exactly. Uh, He's, he is such a, a fascinating man from the little that I know. Like he, he immigrated to the U.S. because of having to flee. I think he was Austrian and he had to flee the Nazis went to Paris, ended up in Hollywood. He went to law school, dropped out of law school, became a reporter, sold his first script, I think while still in Europe, about a reporter, got a job with one of the major studios while in Paris, and that's how he ended up in the U.S. He ended up with all the German immigrants that fled the Nazis and ended up in Hollywood. He would write scripts, but he didn't have a grasp of English yet, so he would write in German, then someone would translate for him. But then he was going to like night school to learn English, which I wonder if that's where the whole thing about the night school for Baxter came mm, in. Yeah. He would only date American women, which like, <laughs> why wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, he just seemed like he. I mean, I could see know, not he, dating Austrian women after this experience, but yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. He just seemed like an interesting guy. Like he, you know, he had to pay his due, which I, you know, I always think that's kind of neat. But his, his scripts are just so clever and imagine learning a foreign just... language so well that you're writing like really intelligent scripts with wordplay in them and I, I i having had to write a two-page essay in japanese that recently man that takes a lot and i don't i mean i my my work is not good but it's really impressive as, as you're saying yeah i need to remind myself that there are people like this just to humble me into realizing i am not an exceptional person i'm just I uh, maybe slightly better than mediocre, but uh, I don't. I don't know. But just learn. It's also. It's part. It's partially like, oh, this person's so talented, I could never even compete with that. But it's also like, oh, well, they also worked really hard to get to that point. So there is hope for all of us, I guess. I mean, not to like get too far into like this discussion, but like, it's not just talent and hard work. It is like there's chance as well, and um, not to like. Put a downer on 2024 before we get to it but the number of mediocre people mediocre or worse people currently making major decisions is staggering if you believe in a uh, meritocracy so oh god I, i'm afraid to say this out of fear and i'll bring into existence but maybe we'll end up having to flee the nazis and we'll end up in <laughs> in a foreign country in their film industry with other expatriate americans that's maybe true yeah no i mean Happy New Year, listeners, whoever you are. <laughs> All right. Well, should we let everybody know what we're going to watch next time? Yeah, I think we've decided on Akiru. We're sticking the, with uh, uh, we're Akira st- Kurosawa movie. We're staying on our bullshit with black and white, but I will say at least it wasn't <laughs> me this time. But I, I am guilty in that I've wanted to watch this movie for several years. So I am very excited to finally watch this. I think after Akira, we'll have to do something in color. Um, but Oh, I know uh, I know what we're going to do for February. We're going to do some Wong Kar Wai shit, my friend. And that's <laughs> going to be sad romance month. I, <laughs> I love it. Um, I'll have to find a sad romance movie. But um, that is a definite like blind spot in my movie watching. So, uh, yeah, there we go, listeners. We're, we're, we were helping you figure out what movies we're going to watch and you can acquire them in whatever way makes sense to you. 
You pretty much just get a subscription to Criterion channel at this point. All right, maybe we should just maybe should just be a Criterion podcast. I think that's really been done before. Also, that's too that's too limiting. We got to talk about non-Criterion stuff at some point. I mean, we just talked about Iron Man three, so just wait. Which I it's don't think be. is getting a Criterion release anytime soon. You just wait. I've I've heard I've heard some rumblings in the Criterion closet. <laughs> we got to get some MCU in here to get the kids. Little do yeah. they know the kids fucking hate the MCU now. So we're all we're all doomed. Yeah. What are we going to do? Good luck, Criterion. Go, go take it up with Nate Silver. God damn it. <laughs> all right. Well, I guess Happy we'll New, New Year, New everybody. Year. Eat some leafy greens. Make some money next year boil a cabbage and just eat off of it for as long as it takes i i can tell you boiled cabbage farts smell unlike oh, anything no. else you'll smell in this world we're going blue bring in 2014 with a new sensation a new, new sensation <laughs> damn it bye, we almost got that. bye. It's a fat boy. <laughs>